0: The talk tonight is called Delighting in the Wholesome. Uh, First, I just want to say what a pleasure it is to be here, um, to be able to drop into the retreat at this point, uh, to be teaching with uh, great colleagues and old friends, uh, to share this unfolding that you are all doing with you. It's really an honor, and I'm really happy uh, to be with you. I really appreciate it's not an easy thing to do, whether it's uh, six weeks or three months. It requires a lot. And coming back to IMS, I'm reminded a lot of my early days here. I was on one of the early staffs, and thinking about the uh, first retreat experience I had here. I did my first Vipassana retreat in 1976, and Joseph was one of my teachers. And after that retreat, I was very inspired by the practice And in the time that I could, I I went home, I packed up my house, put all my belongings into storage, and sublet my apartment, and I moved to IMS as a yogi. And I did a six-month retreat uh, when I came here, which started with a 30-day self-retreat. At that point, I'd only done one 10-day retreat. (laughs) And that 30-day self-retreat was one of the hardest experiences of my life. I can't believe, looking back, that I did such a stupid thing. (laughs) But I got through it. And at the end of the retreat, we were uh, going for exit interviews with Joseph, who was uh, in what was the library at that time, what's now the downstairs office. And I was sitting outside on a bench, and I met one of the fellow meditators, who happened to be Rodney Smith. A lot of you know him. He's a senior teacher here at IMS. Well, I'd just been practicing for one month, but Rodney had been practicing for like three or four. So to me, he was a super advanced meditator. uh, God, if you will, at that point. So I said in a very humble way to Rodney, please tell me, does it get any easier? And Rodney's reply was, as far as I know, no. (laughs) No. So that was our experience at that time. I'm happy to report, after some years, it has gotten easier. <laughs> so there is good news in the story. Um, but still, six weeks or three months, even for long-time meditators, can really take us to the limit of our capacities, can really take us to the edge of our patience, our tolerance, our faith in ourselves, our courage, our endurance, most of us bump up against a wall somewhere, if not often, in a long retreat like this. So I just want to acknowledge the uh, incredible work that you're doing. I know that it's not always easy. Even for veteran meditators, it's not always easy. I just talked with a good friend who came out of a long retreat this year. And uh, the friend was describing in detail the experiences of the retreat And before they started the description, they said, you know, I want you to know this was no small thing. I sat for this number of months. It was no small thing for me. And the friend has a lot of years of meditation experience. And they said, I want you to know parts of it were hell. And then they smiled and shrugged. And I just smiled with them because I know that sometimes it's like that, even for veteran meditators. Sometimes it's like that. It reminded me of the uh, article I read in the New Yorker not so long ago. I want to share a little bit of it with you. This is by an author named Ian Fraser. According to a study just released by scientists at Duke University, life is too hard. Laughter Authors of the 1,200-page study were hesitant to single out... (laughs) Were hesitant to single out any particular factors responsible for making life tough. A surprise, they say, is that they found so many. Before the study was undertaken, researchers had assumed by positive logic that life could not be that bad. As the data... Accumulated, however, they provided incontrovertible proof that human endurance equals just a tiny fraction of what it should be, given everything it must put up with. Nine out of ten of the respondents stated that they would give up completely if they only knew how. LAUGHTER The remainder also didn't see the point of going on any longer, but still clung to a slight hope for something in the mail. (laughs) In a personal note in the afterword, researchers stated that, statistically speaking, life is, quote, just too much. And as yet, they have no plausible theory how anyone gets through with it at all. Do you know this is a parody? I hope you know this is a parody. It's a parody. I thought that this kind of applied to um, retreat practice as well, that we really don't understand how anyone gets through it at all. The difference is that here you've also given up the hope of something coming through in the mail. So it's even more difficult. So whether you've been here practicing for one day or for six weeks, uh, sometimes the question arises, what does this have to do with how hard life is? Is it just accentuating how hard life is? Sometimes in the middle of a retreat we forget why we're here. Often when I start a retreat, I I find the doubting mind comes up early on very strongly as I think about all the other things I could be doing with my time. And I wonder, what am I doing here? So I wanted to talk uh, this evening about the answer to that question in a very simple way, what it is that we're doing here, where it leads, and why we do it. When the Buddha talked about the Eightfold Path, he talked about three factors related to meditation. I like to think of the Eightfold Path as his description of his awakened mind but in terms that we can understand. So I like to think of these three meditation factors as very direct pointers to the qualities of an awakened mind. And these three factors are effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Effort, as we uh, relate to it here, is the willingness to come back again and again. Mindfulness is the quality of connecting with our experience in the moment, and concentration is that unification of mind that lets the mind uh, be sustained in the present moment over a period of time. I'd like to talk mostly this evening about the quality of mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness. I want to start by reading the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the Foundations of Mindfulness. Mindfulness the key discourse from the Majjhima Nikaya where this practice is uh, laid out. This is the very last paragraph of the Buddha's words. Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, and for the realization of Nibbana, namely, the foundations of mindfulness. That paragraph moves me every time I read it, that this simple practice of paying attention in the present moment is the direct path for the disappearance of pain and grief. Not just for the easing of pain and grief, for the disappearance of pain and grief. That's a very powerful statement. How does that work? We might say that the very heart of the meditative path, the heart of the Buddhist path, is this quality of presence, of being oriented and abiding in the present moment. The sign on the casino wall says you must be present to win. It's true in the casino and it's true in the meditation hall. The Dalai Lama said, the present moment is the only place that we can experience love. When we dwell in the present, we avoid a whole host of problems because the present is so simple and is largely not a bad place to be. Here's another quote from the Buddha. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build their hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let her see each presently arisen state. Let her know this and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. One who dwells thus ardently, unceasingly, by day, by night, it is she who has a very auspicious day. So this quality of present moment orientation is a quality that lets us see things just the way they are. Free from the haze of conceptions, this direct non-verbal relation to reality lets us see things without choosing or comparing, or evaluating, or judging, projecting, or interfering. It's such a naked relationship to what is, to reality. Yonaponika used the term bare attention because we aren't adding anything to this present moment experience. We often say that what we're doing here is practicing the Dharma. I really like to think of it as practicing the truth. Practicing being with the truth of things just the way they are not the way we imagine them to be, want them to be, wish they were, remember their being once, hope they will be in the future, just the way they are, exactly in this moment. Reality is our teacher. Another word for reality is nature. Nature is our teacher, the nature of all things, the internal nature of mind and body, the outer nature of mind and body. My teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, liked that phrase a lot. Let nature be your teacher. The nature is all around us. We are nature. All we need to do is wake up to nature the way it is. And it will reveal its truths to us. So we see things freshly. Seeing things freshly, we may see things beyond preconceptions, there's a story of Picasso when he was still a young artist and uh, not yet famous enough to be uh, universally revered. And someone came to him and said, um, I don't get this art you're doing. Why don't you paint things that look like real things? Said, That's the kind of art that I like. And Picasso said, well, what do you mean? What looks like a real thing? And the man pulled out a, uh, something from his wallet And he said, well, look, I want to show you a photograph. This is something real. And he showed him the photograph. He said, this is a photograph of my wife. And Picasso said, is this what she looks like? The man said, yes, without thinking twice. Picasso said, she's very small, isn't she? (laughs) And also rather flat. This probably doesn't really look like your wife at all. So, sometimes in our meditation experience, we find things that don't look the way we think they should look. But instead of trusting our opinion, it's really better to trust our experience, to trust our direct knowledge of the way things are. The Buddha said we make three, four actually, four fundamental errors in thinking the world is one way and finding out it's another. We think it's permanent when it's impermanent, we think that it's satisfactory when it's not, we think that it's self when it's not, and we think that it's all beautiful when some of it is not beautiful. These are the four errors that we see beyond when we come directly in touch with reality as it is. So why is this important? I'd like to just ask you to try a little experiment. You don't have to do anything different or change your posture or even open your eyes. But I'd like you to just sit for a minute, simply being present, without any effort or any focus. I'd like you to just notice how long you can sit like that before the mind starts to drift away from presence. And as it starts to drift away from presence, don't correct it. Let it drift for a bit. And now I'd like to ask you to correct the drift, if you've had any. And come back to presence. Connect again just with what's fresh and real. And whenever you're ready, you can just stop the exercise. So I want you to just take a look at the quality of the experience from those two modes ask yourself what was the experience like when i was just connecting with presence anybody notice any particular qualities Open, relaxed, ease, vibrancy or aliveness, soft, intimate, sorry one other, simple, yeah, thank you. What was it like once you let the drift go on for a little bit? What was the feeling of that experience? Maybe you didn't drift. Sorry? Tightens up. You notice any agitation? The peace being disturbed, things being stirred up. You've seen this hundreds of times. I know each of you has seen this hundreds of times in your own practice. I just want to draw it out again as a little microcosm. In a way, this is the essence of the meditative learning. That when we can connect with the present moment, we discover an openness, intimacy, ease, relaxation, softness, simplicity. And as the mind drifts away from that, we wander into these stirred up waters, agitation, unease, all the confusion that comes from the the whirlwind of thoughts and feelings. I know this is not news to you, just a reminder. So in one interview recently I was talking to someone and the person said, but the present moment is so pleasant. Why don't we just stay here? That's a, I like that question. Not to think about or speculate about intellectually, but it sort of stops the mind, doesn't it? Asking a question like that can stop the whirlwind for a little bit. Why don't we just stay here? in this present? Looking at that question, I think there are a number of answers. One reason is just habit. We've developed the habit for a long, long time of going away, of enjoying the realm of thinking, of past and future conceptualization. A lot of the meditative training is retraining that habit of mind so that over time, there comes to be a preference, a clear preference from the gut, from the marrow, from the center of our being, for presence as opposed to wandering. For simplicity as opposed to complexity. But there's another reason, I think, for that drift that we experience. And that is what we might call the karmic tide of thoughts and feelings. We come into the meditation room and we stop the body but the mind doesn't necessarily stop because the mind has been kind of cranked up over many many years and when we sit we experience this movement this cranked upness really directly that movement of mind that's been cranked up has been generated by areas where we've invested our emotional energy Areas of life that we've cared about, that we're attached to, if you like that expression. Where we put our energy with a certain desire for outcome, desire for result. And so as we sit, often those areas of life where we've invested our thoughts and feelings and hopes and fears start to come back into consciousness. It may be around intimate relationships or the absence of it, could be about family members who were separated from, could be about career or livelihood, could be about money, success. The investment in all those areas that we've lived out through our daily life, that investment is all part of karma. Karma is essentially action with a motivation, motivation, And where we've acted with that uh, investment of energy, we have created our own karma, our own action from a motive. When we get quiet, we experience the momentum of that. It plays out again in our hearts and minds and bodies. This is one important meaning of the equanimity phrase that you've probably all practiced with, which says, all beings are heirs to their karma. This is one way we inherit our karma right here on the cushion, because this tide is made up of our past actions. The Buddha said, By whatsoever a person has clung to, by that Mara will track them down. Mara is the mythological figure in the suttas who represents the obstacles to the deepening of the meditation. He's portrayed in the suttas as an actual being, an external figure, can also be understood as a force within our own mind. Whichever way you take it, the meaning is the same. By whatsoever a person has clung to, by that Mara will track them down. And frankly, as silent retreatants, we are all sitting ducks (laughs) for Mara. Mara's got a direct bead on us in our quietude. It was really interesting. I was sitting at the um, Forest Refuge for a month in April. It had just opened, and uh, there was a two-month period of uh, teacher retreat. And I settled in uh, fine, and the month had its usual ups and downs. But in looking back, I sort of looked back on it at the end of the month, and I saw that I got caught three times, in relation to outside life things. The first one was about work. The second one was about relationship. And the third one was about money. And it's just like Mara had a checklist on me. Okay, what are the big areas, right? Yeah, relationship, work, and money. Okay, I'm going to get him on each of these. Boom. So I had, I had my sufferings around those during the retreat. Because what we find when we sit is that we're kind of at the mercy of this tide to a large extent, especially in the beginning of practice. We don't have much choice about what comes into the mind. It just comes when it comes. Sometimes it's really pleasant. We might remember something really fun that we've done. We might think about a vacation we're planning. We might bring up a meta subject, a person that touches us a lot. Sometimes it's not very much fun. Sometimes we remember old conversations, unfinished uh, business, times we got angry, times we hurt other people, times other people hurt us. And it can be really painful. An incident like that comes in the middle of a silent retreat and it impacts us really strongly because we're so open. So sometimes we invest again, and we amplify the karma. We perpetuate it. We build it up again because we dwell with our thoughts. We have more reactions of hope or fear, liking or disliking, and the karma keeps getting extended. Someone asked a while ago in an interview, well, when these thoughts come up about outside life situations, shouldn't we follow them? Because these are important areas of our outside life. Shouldn't we follow them and use this time in retreat to sort those out? This is a good question. I wouldn't just dismiss this question. Outside life and retreat life are not two separate things. It's one life. But I think that the understanding for me is more like this. Those issues will come up anyway, whether we want them or not, to some extent. When they come, the question that occurs to me is, how do they best get resolved? Is, it, is an issue like that best resolved through more thought, or is it resolved best through a quiet intuition? And over years and years of practice, I've come to have a lot of trust that outside issues, life issues in general, get solved best by a quiet intuition. So the thoughts come, and I try to just let them be on the back burner. I don't try to engage them at all anymore. Sometimes they engage me, but I try not to engage them. And I trust that if there's an important issue there, it will come at the right time, the thoughts will die or pass at the right time, but if it's something ongoing, I light the, I let the silence take care of it. And I trust that grounding my being more and more deeply in the silence will develop the place where the intuition can come from, that can really be a creative solution. because I've just found for myself, when I think and think and think about life issues, it never seems to go anywhere. So I trust in that intuition, and I try as far as possible not to engage with those thoughts. Well, in retreat, of course, there's also the same karmic tide. It's not a different mind here and out there. It's the same mind. As retreat, especially a long retreat, starts to become our life, this is where we invest. This is where we start to have our preferences, the events of our days, and the things that we cling to or push away, the things that are hoped for, the things that are not hoped for. So other questions start to go around. It's not so much after a while. It's not so much about work or relationship anymore. It's more about, was my sitting calm or was it agitated? Was my body comfortable or was it painful? Were my mind states today happy ones or suffering ones? Did I sit enough hours and did I walk enough hours? Was I deepening today or was I going backwards? Now, these are not in themselves bad questions. As meditators, one of the skills you want to develop is the ability to understand um, the signs of your practice, particularly around factors like the hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment or the five spiritual faculties, if you like, to understand when they're active and when they're absent, when wholesome states are present and when unwholesome states are present. So asking questions like this is not unskillful. But as we get invested and this becomes our life, these questions get tinged and we lose the objectivity of Dharma reflection and they come to be taken really personally. So rather than the clear Dharma look of how's the factor of mindfulness, how's the factor of energy, how's the factor of concentration, all the questions really start to hinge around one core question. Am I a good meditator or am I a terrible meditator? And that question has a deeper hook, which is, what does this mean about me? Am I an okay person or am I a really inadequate person? And that generates again the whole karmic tide. And we become attached to the results of meditation, sitting after sitting, day after day. And then these are the thoughts that preoccupy us. These are the thoughts that take us away from just the ability to connect simply and directly with what is. The moment is so simple when we can come out of this karmic tide of investments in past and future. So this karmic tide is a big deal. It is what carries us away from the present moment. It does reveal our areas of holding, the areas of clinging the very foundation of self or ego by what we've held on to. And it's a projective power of mind. It's a projection onto the present moment of something that's not intrinsically real. It's mind-made stuff. It's all stuff of thought and projection. And then mindfulness, as we drop it into this situation, at first doesn't seem like anything. We're mindful for a few moments, and it doesn't touch this stream of thinking and feeling, past and future. It doesn't seem to have any impact on the projections. That's really because at that point, our mindfulness is like a baby or like a child, and these projections are all grown up. We've been doing these projections for a lot of years, and we generally don't take breaks from them. We've been doing them pretty nonstop for a lot of years. So they've built up a lot of power, and the mindfulness can be fairly new. But then we start to look, when we are able to connect with the present, when we are able to abide with reality, We discover that different feeling of ease, simplicity, calm, and peace. And we start to realize that there is an opening that's happening. And we realize that mindfulness has stopped that flood. It is the most effective way to stop that karmic tide. It's mindfulness that has done it, it's our connection to the present moment that has. Halted the advance of that karmic tide. The Buddha said, actually, mindfulness can dam any flood. Any flood. He used a lot of images of water for uh, our wave of thoughts and feelings. I don't know if you've noticed that. He talked about the tides of conceiving, the ocean of samsara, the flood the influxes of the taints or asavas. So every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom where this karmic wave has been halted and we connect with reality and remember that reality is what we learn from. So it's really important in your practice to get in touch with this feeling of direct momentness, of peace, the peace that's found in that connection. The Buddha said that that peace is the highest happiness. So please start to recognize when it's there so that you know when mindfulness is strong and you can feel it, the effect of it. This really is the path to the end of suffering. And all our practice is just about making that mindful space more and more of our life. More and more of your day, more of the sitting, more of the walking, more of the meals. And as we start to get familiar with that peace and ease, we find that there's kind of a a warm quality in that attention, in that mindfulness. that it starts to take on some of the tinge from our metta practice. It's not a cold, analytical, detached, scientific observation. It's a full engagement of your being with the present. And when the fullness of your being starts to come together through this factor of concentration, of unification, of heart and mind, then your heart is all there with the present moment, as well as your head, your brain, your intelligence. And so the the merging of metta and mindfulness is in this quality of connecting to the present with what we might call a warm attention, a warm attention in the present moment. There's an image that I heard on NPR a few years ago that's just stuck in my mind as the sort of uh, manifestation of this warm attention. You may remember that a few years ago, the Italian actor uh, Roberto Benigni won the Academy Award for the picture It's a Beautiful Life? Is that Life is Beautiful. Thank you. He got the Academy Award and he made an over-the-top acceptance speech as... You know, Italian actors are meant to do. And because of his fame at that point in time, uh, he got to go to the White House and meet uh, the president, who at that time was Bill Clinton. And he entered the Oval Office uh, to meet Clinton. And instead of just, you know, slowly walking over, extending his hand and shaking hands, Benigni ran toward Clinton and leaped up into his arms. (laughs) And Clinton is a big guy. And so he was able to just catch Benigni's legs and hold him, and there they were in this embrace where he was just holding Benigni by the legs, and Benigni had his legs and arms wrapped around Clinton's (laughs) waist and chest, and Benigni said, I'm so happy to meet you. (laughs) And Clinton's Secret Service was freaking out on the other side of the room. What is this guy doing to our president? but that's always stuck in my mind as a really beautiful symbol of warm attention. (laughs) Knee pain, I'm very happy to meet you. (laughs) So not only does mindfulness have a quality of being really vitalizing and connecting in the present moment, but it's also onward leading. It's not just good in itself, but it has, it has a future. Its power builds. As you've been here over your six weeks, if you've been here that long, as you stay here over the next six weeks, you will feel the incredible power of mindfulness as it builds. It really changes our relationship to life, but it does it one moment at a time. So we may not know it's doing it while it's happening. It's like when the leaves change, You know, from one day to the next, the color isn't that dramatically different. But after two weeks, it's really different. And by November, you know, it's really different. Sorry, I missed that first part. The Buddha said, don't disregard the accumulation of wholesomeness, saying, this will come to nothing. By the gradual falling of raindrops, a jar is filled That's what we're doing moment after moment. We're filling that jar. And when that jar gets fuller and fuller, it has an incredible power. It can dam any flood. It doesn't matter how old the flood is. It doesn't matter how many years we've invested in that karmic tide. The mindfulness can grow up and dam it. So no moment of mindfulness is wasted. Each is a drop in this jar, this big jar. I have a student in California who um, was hearing this talk one time and came back and told me a story from uh, his youth about this. He said he was in high school. I think he was 17. And he had a girlfriend. It was summertime, probably before his senior year, and he needed a job. He needed money so he could take the girl out on dates. So she said, well, my father has some work for you. Why don't you come over to the house, and my father will give you a job, and then he'll pay you, and then we can go out on a date. So he said, okay. And he's a pretty big guy. He's about 6'3 or 6'4. And he came over to the house and met the father. And the father said, yeah, I have a job for you. Come outside and I'll show you. Went outside. He handed, the father handed uh, the young man a sledgehammer. And he pointed him to a part of his uh, driveway, which was laid down in concrete and was totally solid, filled with concrete. And he said, I want you to break this up. Break this concrete up. He was a young guy. He didn't know what he was getting into. So he took the sledgehammer, and he pounded on the concrete, sort of in the center, and nothing happened. The sledgehammer head just jumped back up. He said, okay, I better not go to the middle of this thing. I'll start on an edge. So he went to an edge, and with all his might... He swung the sledgehammer down on the edge of the driveway and nothing happened. It just bounced back up. He did it again. Nothing happened. He started to get discouraged. Is this doable? And he thought, well, if I don't make the money, I can't go out on the date. So he kept hitting. And he said that after about six hits, the concrete had weakened and a crack appeared. The first crack appeared. But he said, at that point, he stopped worrying altogether. He said, as soon as I saw the first crack, I knew it was possible. If I'd done it in this corner, I could do it in that corner. And then I could just make the corner go inward. I knew I could do the whole thing. And he did. Because that one crack appeared. This is like mindfulness in our practice. Once we see how it weakens one part of this flood, one old karmic pattern then we know it can do the whole thing. It can dam any flood. The Buddha compared the fetters in our mind to the rigging and sails of an ocean-going ship. And he said, when you bring an ocean-going ship up onto the land and you just let it sit out for week after week, He said, the sails and the riggings all rot away because they're exposed to the elements the sun and the salt air and the rain and the wind. And little by little, those thick ropes and those big, wide, thick canvas sails will all just rot in the exposure to the elements. He said, in just the same way, the fetters of the mind easily weaken and rot away in mindfulness like the sails and riggings, rot, exposed to the elements. So this is also the undoing of that karmic tide. The fetters simply rot away. So as you look back through this day, look back through your experience today, you can probably identify a whole range of experiences. Probably sometimes you felt peaceful, sometimes you felt turbulent, sometimes very expansive, sometimes maybe very constricted and tight, sometimes cloudy, sometimes clear. That's the truth of things. That's the truth we see when we just turn on the lens of mindfulness. The experience is always changing, and we don 't have to look for a place to land because it 's always going to keep changing. I just came a few days ago from California, and some of you may know if you 've been out in the world, California had record highs a week ago it was ninety two degrees in San Francisco a week ago ninety two degrees and uh, it was pretty nice the first couple of days that we were here and I saw the sun out this morning. I thought, oh, this is the way the New England fall is supposed to be. This is great. It ought to be like this. That's a, that's a misleading thought because it wasn't long after that it started to cloud up and get colder. As long as I'm stuck on the idea that this is the way things ought to be, then I can't stand the change in weather. As long as we're stuck on the idea that the sitting should always be calm, we can't stand the agitation. We think that it's wrong, because it's supposed to be a different way. But mindfulness doesn't have any should-bes. Mindfulness isn't stuck on an ideal. Mindfulness is willing to learn from reality. How are things in this moment? Let me find my freedom in relation to that. So our moods and all the uh, changing experiences of meditation are just like the weather. And in the change, if we have an idea it ought to be a certain way, we're going to suffer. So the refuge in that, in this change, is mindfulness itself we find within ourselves that quality that can make a clear connection to the moment, to reality, in whatever form it's expressing itself. And this becomes a refuge beyond change. This clear knowing. The word upeka, which uh, is usually translated as equanimity, the actual etymology of the word upeka is looking on. So equanimity is about looking on without being so moved at the changing conditions of life. Mindfulness can be with any experience. Ajahn Sumedho, the Thai uh, forest monk of American uh, descent, European-American descent, has a phrase that I like a lot in relating to changing conditions. He says, it's just like this. Whatever experience he's having, it's just like this. Desire is like this, and non-desire is like this. Ill will is like this. Metta is like this. Suffering is like this. Non-suffering is like this. There's so much wisdom in this line, because we all have Both sides of these dualities, we'll all experience them during our time here. If we think that one way is the way it ought to be, then we'll suffer. But wisdom can see them both and understand them both. Suffering is like this. Freedom is like this. So in connecting with this truth again and again, we develop an awareness that's less and less preferential more and more open to things just the way that they are. So I think I want to talk about um, concentration on another night and I'm sure we'll talk a lot about effort as the retreat goes on and because it's the early days of the retreat for some people midpoint for others, it's also a good time to talk about motivation and intention. I just wanted to Say a few words about that before I close for the evening. Uh, A student said in an interview a few months ago in a retreat I came on this retreat really because I'm concerned how to respond to events in the world. But one doubt that arises for me is is this just a self centered practice? Are we just doing this for ourselves? I wonder for each of us how we respond to that. You all are experienced meditators and I have quite a bit of confidence that you've all answered that uh, for yourselves already. So it's really just a reminder, as I think Steve uh, mentioned last night in the talk, that we're really doing this for the welfare of all beings. That the freedom that we hope to discover is not to be kept to ourselves but is really to be shared and dedicated to the welfare of all beings. There's a beautiful story of the conversion of King Asoka. I don't know if you know this period of Indian history, but a couple of hundred years after the death of the Buddha, Buddhism went through a golden age in India. This is about 250 uh, BCE, 250 years before Christ. And it was due to the conversion of a king who was a very ruthless and warlike king. He was standing on a battlefield, on a battle that he'd won, his armies had won, surveying the bloody carnage of dead bodies, dead and injured bodies on the battlefield, and filled with remorse at the suffering. When he saw from one side a Buddhist monk walking through the dead bodies, through the carnage, across the battlefield. And at that moment, he was struck by the serenity of the monk. He could look at the monk and see the radiance, the peace and the radiance in his face. And at that moment, he reflected I have everything. I'm the richest man in this country, and I'm filled with remorse at what I've done. That monk has nothing. And he's radiant. What's going on here? And because of that, he started to look into the teachings of the Buddha. He became converted, and he completely changed his kingdom. He stopped all wars. He let the neighboring countries know that he was no longer interested in invading them. He outlawed animal sacrifices in the land so that animals would be protected. And he distributed the wealth of the kingdom evenly so that everyone in the kingdom had enough to eat. It was not only a golden age for people who were living there to feel safe and prosperous universally, but he he also became a great patron of the Dharma. And there was a great explosion in the schools and the philosophies of Buddhism in that era, around 250 B.C. This is really the impact of one person who had practiced to serenity, the impact of one monk walking across the field at the right time opened up this huge change in the society. And so I hope that part of your aspiration, as Steve talked about last night, is going back into your life and being that one monk, one nun for somebody. And we never know where our ripples will reach We never know who's going to be touched by whatever degree of freedom, of compassion, of love that we've gained. I think it's important to remember that in our intention as we practice, that we're not just practicing for ourselves, but there's a whole world out there that really needs what you're developing, what you're bringing to fruition. I just want to close with a a quotation from Shantideva is a ninth century master in India. And I, this is something that I carry with me when I travel. It's a small altar, traveling altar, that was uh, made by a member of the spirit Raksanga. And it's got a photograph of the Dalai Lama in the center and this quotation from Shantideva on the sides. The Dalai Lama is very uh, moved, he says, by the teachings of Shantideva. So I'd just like to close with a reading from this passage, which is very close to the heart of the Dalai Lama. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a servant, may I be a slave. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus, for every single thing that lives, in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, May I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. Let's just sit for a minute together, please. every single thing that lives in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 1st, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.